Uh, well, good morning. Uh, good to be here. Uh, not least because uh, I'm slightly afflicted with man flu, it has to be said. So it's a battle even dragging myself here uh, this morning. Who knows that I'm going to get to the north side or the south side as well. But at least I'm here. Uh, please bear with me if I kind of sniffle and I try and sneeze away from people. Uh, I'm here uh, and I, I'm asking you to kind of do battle with me, not against me, but with me to, to kind of focus uh, even if I run out of energy halfway through. But as Russ alluded to, we're in the middle of a series working our way through Luke's gospel, Luke's account uh, of the life of Jesus. It's kind of like week after week after week. We're getting this up close and personal view of what Jesus is really like. Not the Jesus that I think many of us have kind of created in our minds who pretty much agrees with us on most things, but the Jesus who regularly challenges and confronts our attitudes and our assumptions. And that's certainly what we're going to find in today's passage. If you want to follow along, uh, we're going to be in Luke 17. Uh, Just to give you a bit of the background, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He's telling them how he wants his followers to live. Uh, And in this passage, he's going to touch on two basic themes. He says his followers are not to give offense or take offense, not take offense, take offense. Let's pick it up in verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It'd be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied round their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. Now look, most of us, if we're being honest, like a little bit of privacy. Most of us don't like being watched. That There are things that we are quite keen to keep hidden from other people, things we don't want people to notice about our lives. It's like we don't want people to see us as we really are. But according to Jesus here, people are watching us. And it really does matter what people see. What he's saying is, like it or not, you are an example to others. People are watching. People are looking. If you claim to be a Christian, people are going to judge Christianity by what they see in you. People are going to notice if sometimes you're harsh with others or sometimes you gossip behind other people's back, or sometimes you make promises that you don't keep. In other words, if you start to live inconsistently, sooner or later you're going to cause other people to stumble. People are going to see it. People are going to notice. They're going to say, if that's what a Christian is is like, if if that's what Christianity is all about, then if truth be told, I'm just not interested. It's not for me. Or maybe younger Christians may look up to you and assume that because there's compromise in your life, it's okay for them to live likewise. And Jesus warns us here, woe to you if you cause anyone to stumble. Woe to you if the way you live turns anyone away from me. People are watching you, so you need to watch yourself. So first of all, Jesus says, 
I don't want you to be giving offense to other people. And then secondly, he turns it around and he says, I don't want you either to take offense. And it's this that I really want us to focus in on today. Let's keep reading. I'm going to pick it up again in verse 3. Jesus continues, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles heard this and said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, if you remember back a few weeks, we looked at Jesus' teaching on generosity. If you recall, I made the point that being generous is about a lot more than just giving away loads of your cash. Ultimately, it's a heart issue. It's like that there are people who are pretty generous financially without being generous on the inside. I don't know, maybe they're critical with other people, or they tend to be aloof, kind of looking down on others. Maybe they find it hard to praise others or to give other people the benefit of the doubt. It's like they're completely lacking in generosity in the way that they relate to the people around them. Now, there's a specific kind of relational generosity that Jesus is touching on here in these verses. Don't know if you spotted it when we read this. It's a tough one because it kind of flies right in the face of our natural instincts. It's something I think probably if we're honest all of us struggle with at times but Jesus says here that it absolutely must characterize all of us who claim to be his followers. Don't know if you noticed it it's forgiveness. Now let's just put this to the test, looking for a show of hands on this one. Put your hand up if you always find it very, very easy to forgive people. Anyone in that category? Okay, one, maybe a couple of people, uh, but the vast majority of people in the room either didn't understand the question or struggle with this issue of forgiveness, in which case what Jesus teaches us here is vitally important for every single one of us to hear. Here's how we're going to break it up. I want to show you what Jesus teaches us here about the enormity of forgiveness, and then the practice of it, exactly how you do it, And then the key to forgiveness, the only way you'll ever actually go away and do this stuff. There's the enormity of it, the practice of it, and then the key to it. Let's start with the enormity of forgiveness. Did you notice how the disciples respond when Jesus starts talking about forgiveness? Verse 5, they hear Jesus telling them how to forgive, and they say, increase our faith, which is another way of saying, oh my goodness, we can never do that. I mean, what you're asking us to do here is absolutely impossible. They certainly grasped the enormity of the challenge. So what is it, or what was it, that Jesus was asking of them? What is it that Jesus is asking of us? Well, take a look at verse 4. He says, if someone sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now, I think we could get ever so slightly sidetracked here 
because the number seven was symbolic to the ancient Jewish people, the people who were in the crowd listening to Jesus' teaching. Jesus didn't say if they come back twice in a day or if they come back five times in a day, he said seven. And that was significant because the number seven was a number that meant completeness, it meant fullness, it meant perfection, it meant no more possible. So I think what Jesus says is someone sins against you seven times in a day, he's saying something much worse than you think he is. He's saying, if a person wrongs you as completely and as fully as any person could ever wrong another human being, you must forgive them. No wonder the disciples say, increase our faith. So there's the enormity of the challenge. I also want you to see is that we can't shrink back from the enormity of the challenge. We can't say, well, that's just ridiculous. That's impossible. There's no way I'm going to do that. We can't shrink back from the enormity of the challenge because of the enormity of the danger. Notice how in verse 3, Jesus says, so watch yourselves. We've already seen how we're to watch ourselves that we don't give offense to other people. I also think we need to watch ourselves that we don't take offense. He's saying, if someone hurts you, if someone abuses you in some way, if someone harms you, you need to watch yourself very, very closely. And that's pretty counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, that's not what usually happens. If someone wrongs us, we tend to pay a great deal of attention, not to ourselves, but to that other person. It's like, why did you do that to me? But Jesus says, when someone wrongs you, you should immediately pay a lot of attention, not to them, but to yourself. And here's why. If we allow unforgiveness to take root in our lives, it will cause no end of trouble to us. You see, unforgiveness will always justify its existence. It'll always say stuff like, well, I just want justice. I just want the truth. I just want to stand up to my rights. In many respects, unforgiveness is like a cancer. It'll eat you up. It will destroy you inside. Tragically, a lot of people hold on to it out of a desire for vengeance. They want to punish the other person. But ultimately, the only one who unforgiveness punishes is you. If you hold on to unforgiveness, it'll end up destroying you. Listen, when you kid yourself that you're not really being bitter, you're not being twisted out of shape by anger, if you refuse to forgive others, if you stay mad at people, if you hold on to a grudge, if you stay resentful, you're the one who will end up suffering the most. You'll become a way less joyful person. You'll end up being more and more afraid of ever trusting other people. You'll become this hardened, bitter, cynical, angry person. You'll end up being impossible to live with. It's terrible. So Jesus says, watch yourself. If someone wrongs you, 
high alert, watch your own heart. Because of the enormity of the danger, we cannot shrink back from the enormity of the challenge here. Now, all that being said, I've been around long enough to know that some of you will have already rejected what I'm saying. You see, nowadays we tend to be ruled by our feelings. And so if we still feel angry with someone, if we still feel bitter, then we don't feel able to forgive them. But according to the Bible, forgiveness is granted before it's felt. It's practiced before we feel it. Let's turn our attention to the practice of forgiveness. How do we actually do this? There are three things that you can do in practice and which you must do if you're going to avoid becoming eaten up by unforgiveness. They're all here in this passage. The first thing you must do if you want to forgive someone, and you should want to forgive someone, first thing you must do is you must refuse to caricature the wrongdoer and instead identify with them. Don't caricature them, identify with them. Let me try and explain what I mean by that. If someone wrongs you, often the very first thing you do is emphasize how different they are to you. But notice how Jesus here says, if your brother or sister sins, rebuke them. He's talking about Christians wronging fellow Christians. And he's reminding you of what you have in common. He's saying, if a fellow Christian wrongs you, remember, that's a brother. That's a sister. You have common family together. Don't focus on the difference between you. See what you have in common. But the Bible doesn't simply say you only have to forgive people who are fellow Christians, who are fellow believers. If you're a Christian, you only have to forgive people who are Christians. Not at all. Because in Mark eleven twenty five, Jesus says, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them. Don't think it gets much more comprehensive than that. If you have anything against anyone, forgive them. So it's not just Christians, but I think the principle's the same. If you want to forgive somebody, you must focus on, you must stress, you, mo- you must remember what you have in common. Now, you might think you have absolutely nothing in common. I think there are at least two things that I can guarantee you share with each other. And if you're going to take steps to forgive them, you need to remind yourself that in these two areas at least, you are the same as the person who wronged you. First thing you have to remember is you're both sinners. Now, some of you will be sitting there thinking, no, 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 no. Uh, uh, the, the Bible says I'm a saint. Uh, the Bible says I'm a son, I'm a daughter uh, of the king. Yes, absolutely true, you are, if you believe in Jesus. But what did you bring to the table? 
What was it that enabled you to be called a saint? What was it that brought you into this privileged position of being sons and daughters of the king? Was it your good works? Was it your merit? Was it God looked down on the human race and thought, there's one I could really have as one of my children because of their great behavior? Now, all we contribute, the Bible says, uh, is our sin. Uh, our our filthy rags, the Bible says. It's not on account of us. So by nature, we are all sinners. You know, it's impossible to to stay angry at somebody unless you feel a little bit superior to them. If someone's wronged you and you're really mad, it's because inside you're saying, I would never do anything like that. Actually, you might not do anything exactly like that, but because by nature you are a sinner, you certainly could do something like that. But for the grace of God, you are just the same. Listen, you stay, to stay angry is basically to assume you have some higher nature or some higher worth or something. You must remind yourself you are both, by nature, sinners. And you must also remind yourself you're both human beings. The Bible says all of us are made in the image of God. Every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being is this rich, complex being of great dignity and immense worth. But that's not how you tend to feel when someone wrongs you. What you do is you immediately reduce them to what they've done. For example, if someone has lied to you, what do you think of that other person? You say, see that person? That person is just a liar. But if you get caught out in a lie. You, you tend to say, well, well, yeah, I, I know it was wrong, but it's complicated. I mean, I know I shouldn't have lied, and normally speaking, there wouldn't be any excuse, but uh, there's this thing, and there's that thing, and that happened, and this was going on. So it's like, you are a multi-dimensional human being made in the image of God, so complex. That person is just a liar. You're a human being, that person is a cartoon villain. It's like you've excluded that person from the community of other human beings and you've excluded yourself from the community of sinners. You must stop it. And you really can stop it. You, you need to start by seeing what you're doing, by recognizing this. And then you need to bring yourself down a notch or two and you need to bring that other person up a notch or two. You need to say, we're the same. That's the first thing. Don't caricature the wrongdoer, but instead identify with them. Second thing you must do, and I think this lies right at the very heart of forgiveness, is you have to inwardly surrender your right to repayment and resolve in some way to pay the debt yourself. The word forgive that Jesus uses here in this passage. A number of words he could have used. This word is a very specific word that basically means to release another person from some kind of financial debt. So, for example, if a person owes you £10,000 and refuses to pay it, and you say, it's okay, I I forgive you, what happens to that £10,000? If that person doesn't pay you, you are the one who has to end up absorbing it. Give you another illustration. Imagine that you go out to 
kind of fancy event and some guest who's perhaps had a little bit too much to drink spills something on your outfit and completely wrecks it, totally destroys it, ruins it, can't be fixed, can't be cleaned. And they say, oh no, I I, I see what I've done, I'm I'm so sorry, let let me pay for it. If your response is to say, no, I I forgive you, don't worry about it, what's that mean? It means you absorb it. Either you have to pay for a new outfit yourself or you pay effectively by going with one less outfit. The point is that you absorb it. The debt doesn't just go away. It doesn't kind of go into thin air. Either you pay it or the other person pays it. So how do you forgive? Well, you can only forgive if inwardly you forego, you let go of seeking repayment. Now, let me just go a little deeper on this. Let me press a little harder. You see, most wrongs aren't actually financial wrongs. People haven't usually robbed you of money. They rob you of things like happiness. They rob you, perhaps, of your reputation. They they rob you of an opportunity that you really wanted, and they stole it from you. So what does it mean in those instances to make the other person pay? The answer is they made you unhappy. You're going to do all you can to make them unhappy. But they made you hurt a bit. You want them to be hurt. I don't know, you might directly try to hurt them. You you do things to make their life worse. Or you just go and give them a piece of your mind. You knock on their door and you attack them verbally, maybe even attack them physically. You directly try to hurt them. Another way to hurt them and get repayment is to go to other people and ruin their reputation behind their back. You gossip about them. You you, you criticise them to others behind their back. I think the more common response is actually not to do anything outward, but inwardly you're seething. Inwardly you're rooting against them. You regularly remind yourself of what they've done to you. You you kind of nurture those feelings of resentment and anger. You, You remind yourself and replay the films, the videos of it in your mind over and over again to make sure you stay angry with them you root against them. And so every time you hear that maybe something has gone wrong in their life, you celebrate. Victory. Anyone relate to this? Well, maybe you can, maybe you can't. But here's what happens every time you hurt them directly or indirectly. Or every time you root against them and take delight in their misfortune. What happens is you feel good Because it feels like the debt is being paid. But on the inside, you're becoming more and more twisted up. It's like bitterness slowly but surely spreads, taking root, and it will sap the life out of you. You see, in the short run, you feel great because it feels like, hey, I'm getting repayment. They're getting what they deserve. In the long run, you have opened the door of your life to bitterness and it is going to suck out your joy. If you go after vengeance, you go after repayment, you feel great in the short run. In the long run, you're getting more and more and more twisted out of shape. But if instead you choose to forgive, 
Yeah, it feels hard. It feels incredibly painful in the short run. In the long run, freedom. Now, the more observant ones might be thinking, yeah, but what about verse 4? What about that bit where Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, rebuke them? I like that word rebuke. Can't we hear a whole series of sermons on that word? Now, please don't hear me wrong. Not talking about turning a blind eye to other people's wrongdoing. It is really not loving just to let someone go on and on and on doing whatever they want. But, and there is a but, before you rush out of here to apply the rebuking part of this message, you need to compare what Jesus says here with the parallel passage over in Matthew's Gospel in Matthew 18. In Matthew 18, it says, if your brother sins against you, rebuke them. If they listen to you, you have your brother back. Now you know what the purpose of the rebuke is. It's to win the other person back. It's to win them over. It's to see them restored. Now you also know why you have to be very careful reading this verse here in Luke 17, because uh, I've had people over the years say, uh, it says here, if your brother sins and he repents, then forgive him. So if he doesn't repent, haha, I don't have to forgive. Let me show you something. If you haven't inwardly forgiven them before you go and rebuke them, why exactly are you going? What precisely are you going to be doing to try to win the other person back? To love them, to gently wake them up, to help them see what they've done wrong so they can avoid any problems in the future? No. You're going to try and make them feel bad in some way, to get back what they've taken from you, to get vengeance. I've had many, many people say, I don't want to forgive, I just want justice. I always say, if you don't forgive, when you go to get justice, you won't actually be getting justice. Instead, you'll be getting just vengeance. And that person is unlikely to respond well, and you'll just end up with more of a battle on your hands. You won't have won your brother back, you'd have alienated them even more. So I don't think there's any contradiction here. Jesus says in Mark eleven twenty five, if you have anything against anybody, even as you're praying, forgive them. Here in Luke 17, he says, don't forgive them until they repent. I think it's really saying you inwardly forgive immediately, then you go and rebuke in order to reconcile, in order to win them back. In other words, the third thing is you must want the good of the wrongdoer you must desire good for them. You can't say, I forgive, but I don't want anything to do with them. Because what you're saying is, I've refrained, I've held back from hurting them, but I still don't want their good. I don't want them to flourish. Which actually means you haven't forgiven them. Just because you're not punching them on the nose doesn't mean you've forgiven them. So important to realise you must forgive on the inside 
before you go rebuking people. So once again, it's absolutely vital that you heed the message of verse 3 and watch yourselves. Now look, I've been speaking for a while now, probably run out of time, but I think it'd be wrong for me to end at this point. Because some of you uh, have been listening and you're thinking, okay, you've given me the how-to here. It's like kind of step one, step two, step three. I've kind of written that down or I can at least remember most of it. But I'm still back in verse five. Increase my faith. And so for me to end at this point would be distinctly unhelpful for you. It's like I've told you the importance, the enormity of forgiveness Uh, I've shared with you what forgiveness looks like in practice, but I haven't told you where to get the power to do this. So if you forgive me, I'm going to keep going. And if you won't forgive me, we're going to be looking at the key to forgiveness, so it'll all work out fine uh, in the end. Fortunately for us, Jesus spells it out in some detail. As everything after verse 5 here is a response to the disciples saying, we don't have the power to do this. In verse 7, Jesus gives us, this parable. He says, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. And will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Jesus is saying to his hearers, that would be odd behavior, and you know it. Now for us, it probably doesn't seem so odd to thank your servant. That's just being polite. It's being nice. We don't really know what Jesus is getting at here. Really, to to get what Jesus is saying, we need to understand that these household servants in the parable aren't your normal employees. Back in those days, if you fell into debt and owed more money that you could pay, only two things could happen. Number one, you would be put into prison. The person you owe, the creditor, could easily throw you into prison, and that's it. End of story. You'd probably just die there. Or, second option, if there's a little more mercy, you could go and work for the person you owe money to, until your debt is fully paid off. Now that is what's happening in this parable. If you're the servant in the story, you don't just kind of knock off at the end of the day. Why? Because you're never off duty until your debt is fully repaid. Also, you never expect the creditor, that the master of the house, the one you owe everything to, to say, thank you so much, you've helped me so much here because actually it's the other way around. You're only doing your duty, and by the creditor allowing you to do it, you're not being thrown into prison. You're going to be able one day to get out of debt. He is doing you a favor. And then Jesus, at the end of this parable, flips it around. He's been telling the story, been telling the parable from the point of view of the master, and then he switches it to the servant's perspective. Verse 10, so you also When you have done everything you were told to do, including, I guess, forgiving others, you should say, we are just unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. All right, here's what's going on. I think what he's saying is, when you refuse to forgive, 
you're not remembering who you are. It's like you're a servant acting as though you're a king. The reality is you owe God everything. He created you. Every minute of every day, he sustains you. You owe him absolutely everything. If you're a Christian here today, he redeemed you. He paid the price to to set you free. Therefore, he's the king. Effectively, you're the servant. But when you turn to someone else and you say, look, I'm not going to forgive that person for what they did to me. What you're doing is you're behaving like a servant who's pretending to be the king. It's like you are putting yourself in the judge's seat. You're saying, this person deserves that. How do you know what that person deserves? Are you God? Do you see everything? Do do you know what that person went through? Do you know their background? Do you know what's happened in their life? How do you know what they deserve for what they did? What, what gives you the right? You see, you're a servant acting like a king. That's what Jesus is saying in this parable. And then just notice what he says immediately before the parable. When the disciples say, increase our faith, this is impossible. We just can't do this. He says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, it doesn't mean faith in general, it means faith in him. He's saying, if you had the slightest understanding of what I have done for you, if you had the slightest understanding that you are a sinner saved by grace, You think you're saving yourself. You think God owes you. You think God's thanking you for all your hard work. No, 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 no. If you understand the gospel at all, it will free you. It will release you to forgive. If you have any idea what I have done for you, it will release you to forgive. You say, well, what what did he do? I'll tell you what he did. The only way to get out of the absurdity of servants acting like kings is to see the wonder, the glory, the beauty of the king who became a servant. You will never be long-suffering until you see him going to the cross to suffer for you. You'll never be able to forgive other people their little tiny debts towards you until you see him dying on the cross to pay your great debt. You'll never stop being a judge, putting yourself in the judgment seat over others until you see the real judge of all the universe getting out of the judgment seat and coming down and going to court and being condemned and being tortured and being killed for you. Here's the judge who didn't stay in his seat, but became judged for you. How in the world can you then take a judgment seat on anybody else? See, this will change you. This has the power to transform you. Jesus says, if you understand the gospel, 
just a mustard seed worth of gospel grace will be enough to turn you into a person who forgives radically and who lives generously with others. If you are living in the good of God's grace, people can wrong you in all sorts of ways, all sorts of places. It will be hard. It will be a battle at times. It will be incredibly difficult. But in the end, they can't touch you because you'll be free.